Hello again and welcome to the Les Represent podcast, the podcast about everything lesbian and lady loving queer and everything in that spectrum. Our stories, our experiences, our rep- the representation that we want to see in the world, and most importantly, what it represents us. Today I have two super special guests who can, who are excellent at... <laughs> Kitty, this is not the time! <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna try to tell me I have mice, you need to let me know. I have too many cats for there to be mice in this house. <laughs> Someone's gonna get fired. I'm sorry. <laughs> are you Are you done? Jesus Christ. Stella's gonna start taking tips. I know, I'm like, don't get my cat ideas. She's being so good right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, let me, let me just continue where I was at. Today we have super special guests today who can give me a little insight on their brand of representation. And we'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, so my name is Miranda. I am the host of Wow, this is going badly. Um, <laughs> it's my fault. My name it's is completely my fault. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, my name is Miranda. I am the host of the Warehouse 13 podcast. It's called Podcast 13, which is a little hard to look up in your search engine, but you'll find it. Um, and I am an English teacher and teacher of LGBT lit at my local community college. And I am Jillian. I am the co-host of the same podcast, Podcast 13, and I am a writer and I do accessibility screenwriting, especially for the visually impaired, making TV and movies accessible to visually impaired people. You two do very, very important jobs on the side, or <laughs> or is this on the side? I don't know, but you two do, you two do very important <laughs> jobs. Thank you. Um, well, let's, let's get into your podcast first. For somebody who has never watched the show or listen to your podcast. Can you explain what it is? Yes. So Warehouse 13 was a TV show that premiered in 2009 and ran until 2014. So it was very foundational for me because this was the year that both Jillian and I graduated high school and went off to college. And um, it's a science fiction show, but it engages with history. So it builds science fiction plot lines around historical quote unquote artifacts. Um, and so it's like, if you're into sci-fi, if you're into nerdy things, if you're into history or literature, these um, basically uh, secret service agents have to track down historical real life things that are wreaking havoc in the world. So it caught my attention right away. And it also has a uh, representation of gay and bi characters, which became really huge for me as I was like finding myself at that time in my life. Wow, you guys had dates and everything. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. (laughs) No. No, it's totally fine. Um, I was just saying, and so the idea for our podcast was to do a intersectionally feminist-driven re-watch and analysis of the show itself. Uh, And it was really Miranda's brainchild that I helped bring the other half to. She brought the expertise in history and Victorian studies, which is her field. And I am a media studies person. And we both love science fiction and fantasy. Um, And that was actually a big part of how we became friends. So we knew that we'd be a perfect 
pair of people to go and go forth and analyze this with both academics and industry professionals giving insight into various aspects of the show. Yeah, because I love TV podcasts and we both just love TV in general. Um, And so I had listened to like the X-Files files and Gilmore Guys and like uh, the this is before um, buffering the Vampire Slayer. But now that's a really good sort of queer film analysis of Buffy and like all of these things I was like we like I could do that but also I I have a a PhD in English which has not really taught me about the industry so my best friend in the world who works in the industry I was like we can make this a really productive and like thought-provoking take on what was kind of a low budget like very aughts sci-fi original series like the SYFY channel it has all of the trademarks of those productions but it did something really special um at the time to the best of my memory it was one of if not the first sci-fi original series watched equally by men and women um obviously this was back in 2009 so these were kind of gender binary statistics but at the time, um, sci-fi had historically been watched by just a bunch of dude bros. And then this show came around and it had a strong female lead. It had a strong bi woman um, in season two and like people paid attention. And so like it became something that stuck with the fan community even 10 years later, like we still love it for what it did. And for me personally, I love it more now, especially having done the podcast about it, because it's not that it wasn't important for me as a queer show. It's just that I think that I didn't really understand that or how I was queer when I first watched it. Um, I just knew that I was very, very drawn to the characters for reasons other than romantic or sexual interest, which plays into the way I'm queer and what I learned about myself later. And so seeing characters that aren't necessarily driven by a romantic storyline and that like friendships are so important was something that I think was really important to me. And like now looking back, I understand myself more and understand why that appealed to me so much. And just also on a professional level, I was so excited to do this podcast with Miranda because I do listen to a lot of TV podcasts and then almost always there's some rabbit hole that someone goes down just because, and it's not something that's wrong with them, but most TV podcasts go, well, how did the writer let this happen? Or like, why did this thing? And like, my brain is going, no, you don't understand. There's at least 15 people that went through this decision. And then that might've gotten overruled by this. So I was really excited to be able to do an analysis of TV that had the academic insight with the addition of the practical industry insight in it that I hadn't really heard anything like that before. And that's super exciting. I would love to know those details too, actually, because <laughs> it's such like anything behind the camera, like behind, behind, not even behind the camera, anything in like the the cutting room. Okay, I don't know crap about how you make TV. <laughs> 
Um, and that's fine. Most people don't. But like, I was glad that I was able to add my insight to that. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm bummed out. I have not seen the show because I I'm into anything gay. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how it's to make excuses for myself. There. I mean, was this was this not the show that was the spinoff of Doctor Who or something? Like, did they have? I remember. Torchwood. Huh? Torchwood? That's Torchwood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it's a great show, and it is very gay. <laughs> and it's also pretty... Oh, yes. I would say it's gayer than Warehouse 13 in very explicit ways. But, um, yeah, no, that's a... It's a very similar show. I could see how you get those confused in that it's an organization that deals with secret things. And, yeah, I get it. Yeah. And I don't watch enough TV to get anything, like, to figure anything out anymore. <laughs> Like, I'll totally be fine. like, oh, I saw a commercial on that, like, several, several years ago, and I just, <laughs> there's just too much TV to get back around to doing things now. At what time did you guys start doing this podcast? It would be January of this year. Is that right, Jill? Yeah. Yeah, January. We launched. We started a little earlier, like, preparing. Yeah, so I remember actually because I'm we're both creative writers. I'm a novelist and I started like basically brainstorming guests and plans in November. I remember because I was writing my National Novel Writing Month um novel at the time and I was like feeling invincible, staying up really late writing my my novel and then I was like, "Okay, perfect. I can also like email some scholars and like um, cause that's, I think a big thing is that, uh, I really wanted our podcast to not, um, so I, I had decided that I, I wanted to be an academic, but we talk in academia and especially in like, um, feminist spheres and queer spheres of academia about like radical citation practice and how, as a scholar, you can change the field in, you know, in your own way by citing women, citing women of color, citing queer people, like don't just perpetuate the work that has been done by old white men forever, but instead like you can further the work of uh, women and queer scholars by like including them in your own. So I was like, oh, I have this, well, I have six-sevenths of a PhD, but I almost have a PhD, <laughs> and I can use this, uh, you know, university affiliation, professor job sort of title to find other scholars and include them um, who, like, often get overlooked, especially in science fiction. It's like, ask a white dude about sci-fi yet again, and I was like, no, we're gonna ask, like, black women, we're gonna ask queer women, we're going to ask every different variety of person who's underrepresented in the field. So um, that was another big part of it for me and why our first uh, first brainstorm took so long to then launch the podcast because I was like booking guests left and right. Like I've got to find someone who is like really, really capable and expert at this topic, but is not usually consulted because of their identity markers, you know? That's amazing. I have so many things to ask you about Please, how you, yeah. I have so many things and I'm just like this, we don't have enough time in this podcast and I don't want Jillian to feel like we're ignoring her. Um, 
She'll okay. probably answer most of the things too. Like we we co-run pretty equally on the work. I'd say we're a really really excellent partnership because while we excel at some of the same very important things, and like we're both I'd say equally comfortable on the microphone and we have a good rapport with each other. I think that we also have generally very complementary strengths. Um, like the things that make one person anxious makes the other person relaxed to do. <laughs> beautiful. Um, and things That's that one beautiful. person has no idea. Yeah. And the things that one person has no idea about the other person is like, That's so easy. I'll do that immediately. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we got it. You can ask us both <laughs> I guess, or either. I guess actually I can formulate this question in a way that both of you can answer. It's not particularly about your podcast, but how do you how do you guys feel about people in your individual industries like straight washing things because it is a reoccurring problem and it's something that's coming up more and more especially with like the finally becoming news that Emily Dickens was queer and that you know Oscar Wilde was queer and I'm just so mad that I wrote a paper apparently it's news to a lot of people because a lot of people did not know that Emily Dickens was queer Oscar Wilde I think he's been out there for a while even past his death um he's been out for a while (laughs) okay but I think to answer that question, because my specialty is the 19th century, both of both of the people you mentioned are people in my LGBT lit class that I'm teaching right now. Um, Emily Dickinson's amazing because I would suggest that she is probably bi. She had relationships with men and women. Um, obviously, we can't really like retroactively apply terms that she didn't have onto her but that's like my read of her work and I think that there's this issue with because Emily Dickinson in particular is like a, a thing you learn in high school like it's poetry that is revered and respected but is also like pretty easy for a high schooler to understand so I had this problem when I was in high school with her as well as Walt Whitman, um, who's like super gay and like and very- And I had no idea until like last year. Like Whitman writes poems about naked men and his sexual desire for them. And yet the high schools, especially, so Jill and I are both from Arizona, which is a very conservative state. And the high schools just don't want to address that because uh, it even 10, 20 years ago, it was like, that connection between queerness and like predatory or unsavory behaviors, which is like really problematic and rooted in historical biases and not in any facts whatsoever. But so I think it's just that like an average non-English major, like just a lay person who read some books in high school had that straight washed by their teachers who felt it was inappropriate and then they just never found out. So like in Victorian studies where I work, we all we all now like immediately talk about Oscar Wilde's queerness. Um, and most of us talk about Emily Dickinson's queerness, if not at the center of her work, at least somewhere in there. But there's definitely, I think this like really unfair history of, well, like thinking that sexuality is somehow linked to like, now you're talking about explicit sexual relations when it's like you all read Romeo and Juliet and like that was a romance 
between straight people and no one was offended by it. So all of a sudden you're reading a romance between queer people and you're offended by it. That's not equal and that's not right. But that would be my like right. elevator take on why average high school or non, you know, humanities major people miss out on these amazing things. Whereas like, fortunately in my field, Victorian studies does have a lot of queer people in the, in the academy working on that right now. So I think that's really good. And <clears throat> ooh, voice just went away for a second. Um, and on my end in media industries, I would just say that the gears of media move very slowly. And while there's certainly bigotry in the industry, just as there is in any place, um, I think that more of the problems in media in terms of straight washing come from just ignorance and the people who are ignorant being more established and higher ranking than the people who have newer things to say. So it becomes harder to talk to your boss about something like, hey, this character, we should really be looking at them in a more nuanced way. People tend to think that because you're in a writer's room or because someone's this level producer or you work together that you can just say what you want and that's just not how it is. So I think that makes it harder for people to speak up um, and correct things. And so the way things typically go in media industries is people, I'm mostly an expert on TV, so I can speak most comfortably about that. And I would say that in TV, the general idea is when you get hired in a writer's room, your job is to be the biggest cheerleader for the TV show. You're not there to throw wrenches and things. The showrunner, the creator is the person who creates the show. And then if they're nice, they'll listen up when you have something to say but that's not always the case and the goal is just establish yourself make connections until you become successful enough to create your own show that can put forth these ideas that you want to express so that's why I think it just it's a mix of well-intentioned ignorance and time which is a really unsatisfying answer. And I know that there are people who will say it, it's never the right time to change social norms, but just the gears of culture move very slowly and it's super important to push where you can, but not a lot of people can make that push without a risk to their livelihood in a position where people work years just to be in a situation where they can bring someone they hope to work for a cup of coffee. So I think, I think we'll get there. And I also think both in academia and media industries, it's a little bit like that monologue in the devil wears Prada where, um, Meryl Streep is talking to Anne Hathaway's character. And it's like, you think you've made a choice about what to wear today, but actually, it came from these fashion designers who had these ideas and then that got filtered down to ready to wear and then that shirt you picked out of the $2 bin was because of that thing that happened 
<laughs> on the front lines of fashion like all that time ago I feel like it's very much the same way in academia and in media industries like the conversations are happening now and changes are happening in small ways and it's just going to take time for that to filter down into the widely accepted everybody understands this pool of thought yeah and for those old people to retire this is the problem in the academy is that like these professors get tenure and then they're like 85 and they're still teaching and it's like go retire buddy like i'm not being ageist i'm just saying like what happens is that people stay in their position of power because they like it and in actuality there's a bunch of like young queer women ready to take that 85 year old white straight man's post but he's going to stay there to the end because he loves his thing and that's great. But it happens so slowly that you finally get new professors or new leading scholars in because like the field is a sort of forever field, sort of like TV. It just takes so many decades to get the job you want. And so it's like, oh, can't this happen faster? Like we need this change. Yes. And like, I would like to add that there is theoretically space for everyone at the table and not every older person needs to retire. But I would say that there is a shift that happens in both of our industries <clears throat> where when you're first writing your first script or you're getting your PhD, you're searching for that new thought. You're searching for that new story to tell or that new perspective to research and learn and you rise to the top by learning. And then I think once you've been at the top for a certain amount of time, you start to think of yourself as the authority and your focus shifts away from learning and more onto, I am now the holder of this knowledge that I've worked so long to possess. And now I'm going to tell what I know to the people, people lower on the rung, which you, I don't think you can do as, without maintaining that learning perspective because if you lose that learning perspective, that's when ideas become very insular and representation d doesn't reach the level it needs to reach. Does that make any sense? Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think this this is fantastic. You guys are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um. Wow, how how do we move on from that? Because we were talking about your podcast and then we got to a really deep conversation that I actually love. I love talking about this stuff. This is the kind of stuff I just, I love figuring out how the world works. And especially when you guys are, you guys are both in different industries that I have no visual on. I like have, I don't even know, I don't even understand how you be like in <laughs> academia or in TV. This is like bizarre. I'm talking to two aliens at this point because I'm just like, I don't understand how any of this works. <laughs> We're all experts in our own thing. And like, that's also the thing about like being an academic or being a TV writer. Like, like Jill even said, like, I'm not actually an expert in film, you know, like, like you're such an expert, Jill, in television particularly. And like, as you become an expert in a thing, it's like, you know that very specific thing. Yeah. And ev everyone is an alien, like even if, you know, my sister is a, uh, a math teacher and I'm like, alien, even, uh. though we're both <laughs> even though we're both teachers, it's like not the same in any way. My dad's an accountant and I cannot fathom what he does in a day. <laughs> I, know, I know there are spreadsheets involved and that 
is what I got. That's <laughs> it. That's it. <laughs> you can be really excited when you see a female TV writer with her name on a script, like the written by in the opening credits. But keep your eye out for created by credits with female names, because those are statistically way less. And, you know, and then, then, of course, as we're an intersectional feminist podcast, in both of our industries, I think it's rare to find a woman of color in a higher level position. Like you might find a person of color or a woman, but the intersection of those things is often very hard to find. So I think that without getting too deep into it, because again, none of this is news. It's all, it's all well-documented studies show these things. But I think that what a person who isn't us and isn't in these industries can do is seek out information written by female, queer, intersectional scholars, seek out TV shows helmed by women of color or by women or by people of color just you will often see commercials for tv shows and movies that perpetuate the status quo and there's nothing wrong with you enjoying those movies but also as a consumer seek out movies and information written by other people too yeah. And even just like as a, cause I love uh, Twitter and stuff, like go follow a bunch of like black feminist writers, Latina feminist writers, like go, even if you think like you're following, I don't know, Jezebel or something like find something that is a community you don't belong to. So this is a podcast, but I'm very white and very blonde. Um, <laughs> but the, the way to do better as the person that I am is to learn from communities different than myself and like hear how other people and read how other people are talking about whether it's an academic idea or I just read a lot of television and film reviews and like find the review written by a woman of color. There's a really good one out about the Joker movie right now. Like, yes, find, find those things and like listen to those voices because you can't you can't understand what it's like to be anyone other than yourself. But you can like give that website your, you know, clicks and their advertisers give them money and like they're able to keep doing what they're doing. Um, or you pay for, you know, you pay for the TV series on Amazon or iTunes and then that that female helmed TV show gets paid for doing their work. Like support people's work and like seek out work that is something you didn't, you know, that you didn't think of yourself, that like someone had to teach you, I guess. Yeah, instead of just relying on the things that you see advertised the most. Because that might also be a reason that, and I'm not saying you should get into TV if you're not into TV, but like if you find yourself not being into TV or movies or whatever because you see stuff and you're like, well, I'm just, that doesn't interest me enough to invest my time in it, that's because you're being shown things that aren't directed to you and what you like. So if you become the driver of your own little entertainment vehicle then you can probably find more that you would like to spend your time on yeah and also if you like 
queer young adult fiction, which is like my thing, I'm always reading. There are so many queer young adult authors of color telling stories about characters and people of color. And it's like, it's exactly all the, you know, sort of, I don't know, Rainbow Rowell or whoever. It's like, you, you can have these things that you love and then find uh, lesser known, but just as good versions of those things that tell other people's stories. And it's like, they're so good. And the best thing is that you think, well, it's so much work. I found this one thing, but now I enjoyed that and it's over and now I need to go find this other thing. The people who create these things talk to each other. Like, I'll often be on Twitter because I found someone I liked um, whose work I appreciate. And then they'll be talking to someone else and they'll say, wow, this this person is doing this really interesting thing. So you just have to find your own entry point once you find it, it becomes really easy to navigate into more specific spaces. You guys are so great. I love this conversation. <laughs> I'm glad we are very chatty, but um, we we love we love what we do. Like you mentioned, oh hi Bella. You hi. mentioned that uh, like are those your real jobs or is this your real job? And it's well, like I said that because I wasn't I I say dumb things a lot, and when I guess I meant to, I don't, I don't know, like, I, like, I'm always fighting with myself over, you know, oh, you call something a hobby, thus it is less important than the thing that makes you money, but we know that sometimes that's not true, though, you know, it's just a very capitalistic point of view of the thing that makes you money has to be the most important, or if you love this thing and you put so much time in it, but it's not bringing you money, then it's not important, which is not true in most cases. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I said no, I that, was, and I tend to correct myself, and I'm just bleh. I no, was just we're not offended at all. I was saying, like, you were right to say that because, like, we are, uh, what's, what's the word? Like, we flourish in our careers, and we love our careers that pay us. But, like, this podcast is just all of our passion. Like, the TV show itself is a source of passion, but also just all the ideas in the show, like, that's why it comes together so well. It's like, we are talking about representation, we're talking about queerness, we're talking about identity, like, it's not just that we love Warehouse 13, it's that, like, that podcast we run is our space to, like, talk about and try to do something about these things that we're discussing and that we find really, like, important to us personally. And, like, we love each other, and we love each other's brains, and we say that to each other all the time, and there isn't a huge amount of space out there that asks specifically mine and Miranda's opinion about things. Like, just, there's not a lot of opportunities for us to just expound at length, and yet, and without being, like, really full of ourselves, which is not the intention, I think that we do have important things to say that no one's ever going to ask us about, so we have to create a space for ourselves to say them, and I think that's important, and I love what I do for my job, and I would love to create and write a TV show of my own someday, that's what I'm always working towards, but in terms of a career, I would love to do this full-time quite honestly I think that we bring something relatively unique to the table and I think it's fun so we validate your perspective on it completely yeah, 100% we're I think we're all on the same page in this chat of like 
getting to do a podcast and like talk to really smart and interesting people all the time is so fulfilling without having to like bend to the rules of you know your industry's format <sighs> restrictions you know my industry is so restrictive you have to sound like a you know like a old british man and i'm like i don't sound like that you know oh my like, god I I sound like this. I sound like a <laughs> California girl, and I think that's okay. I think that that doesn't invalidate my brain and smartness. And, you know, Jillian jokes that she sounds like Minnie Mouse. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but, like, we, you know, we have these very, like, femme, you know, ways of existing in the world that often get, like, kind of treated as as frivolous. And especially when you're bubbly and chatty, like, that gets added on but it's like no we're actually like really saying something in our own way yeah I was walking down the street with some friends the other day to a farmer's market and I said like a lot because I was excited but I had just um done some work on Mean Girls because we often take older movies and then prepare them for TV runs to make them accessible for visually impaired people and I was talking to my friends on the way to the farmer's market about romance and friendship representation in Mean Girls and things I noticed because I had to work on it very slowly, frame by frame. And so you you notice things when you do that. And we were having a good discussion, but I guess I was saying like a lot. And some random guy on the street started screaming at me. It was like, you're never going to be successful in your life if you say like all the time. Do you think that like... Oh my all god. All these people say like and I was just like having my own conversation saying things like I have a job in my field. I am successful. But by the virtue of my voice and the way I was speaking, there was the implicit assumption by him that I was unworthy to voice opinions or share anything. Let me let so, me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. I Okay, you guys live in California, so I'm guessing this man was older white, possibly with a five o'clock shadow, and then <laughs> yeah. maybe was riding a bike at the same time. No, he was like walking Damn. to the farmer's market behind us, but otherwise you're dead on. I, yeah. I mean, white man with a five o'clock shadow is not, like, it's not a rarity in the world at all. But, <laughs> but like, he, he was white head to toe. Like, he, his hair had gone white. He was older. He had a mustache. Five o'clock shadow. But just, you know, there are good men in the world. And there was um, these really nice dudes behind me and my friends. And they just came up to us and were like, hey, the farmer's market looks good today. Do you want to go walk over to the bakery? And they just, like, walked us away from him. And we're like, yeah. That was really weird. We're sorry that that happened to you. Have a good time at the farmer's market. So for all the bad, there's good. But yeah, that was just a story to express that this is why it's important for people who look and sound like us to have a place to express their ideas. Because in just the world, it's often met with hostility for no discernible reason. Or for Jeff. Jealousy. I tell, like, so I get <laughs> flack from scholars who are older than me and more, I don't know, established than me or whatever. And I'm like, oh, they're just jealous that my ideas are actually good. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I treat it as if I'm a middle school girl getting bullied by by other girls. I'm like, whenever <laughs> someone in my field is, like, trying to, trying to, to treat me like I 
am not worthy of having smart ideas. I just, it's just because, um, is it Maya Angelou? She says in a world, uh, where inequality is the norm, equality starts to look like, uh, do you know this quote, Jillian? I do, but I can't. Equality starts to look to look like oppression she's referring to white men feeling like when women get a voice especially women of color which i'm not but when women get a voice and men are used to monopolizing the conversation they start to think that they're being oppressed because like they've had it so easy for so long and then here comes you know a 28 year old victorian studies scholar whose ideas are treated better than yours and you're like what what is that girl you hear it yes my ideas are good bro calm down (laughs) (laughs) i would also think that they're also jealous that they don't have the internet at their disposal but granted i can't look up anything on the internet and that's not that's not to say that I'm not good with technology it's just that there's so much of it and I am not educated in the way to identify fake news so I don't I don't know if I'm reading the correct thing like ever so I don't know you should be able to the the one big tip I can give you or anyone who has that insecurity or fear is you should be able to ask questions about whatever you're reading if it's just presented like this is out there, you should be able to say, but who wrote this? Where did this quote come from? Like, what kinds of stories does this newspaper usually publish? It, if it's just like, you know, one of those memes you see on Facebook, like, did you know Barack Obama eats babies? <laughs> what, like, what questions can you ask about that? No one can answer them. Where did you get that information? Why? So if you find yourself reading something and you can't ask any questions that can reasonably be answered, just ignore it. Never going to know anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a good, I like, I could give a really boring explanation of how to identify what I want, but like, but like also like Jillian is saying, like you no matter who you are or what your educational background is, like you have a functional human brain that can interrogate a text. And so, yeah, you see that it's just like, um, you know, just like a photo of Barack Obama with text on top of it. And there's like no source and there's like no person holding themselves accountable for creating that information. Then it's like not good information. Like you as, as any human being can look at that and, and interrogate it and be like, you know, I think this is probably fake. Yeah, and you don't have to be a PhD. Definitely not. And I I say that all the time because our show also, um, to the podcast, like, we we have PhDs on the show a lot, but we also have authors and artists and, like, journalists. Like, um, we had, I think, one of my favorite episodes, a tribal elder who's indigenous tribe was horribly represented in the tv show that we had that we had like been talking about and so it's like you can be an expert in something solely by experience or solely by your you know your relationship to a topic like it doesn't have to be a bestowed upon you by an authority in order to be a real and valid form of knowledge like Mm -hmm. that's i think everybody brings something to the table is it super important as a feminist to like acknowledge that um, yeah that sometimes like actually the people who are best equipped to tell us about something are like gatekeepers are holding them out of the traditional like authoritarian I have a PhD 
Um, but yet that person is still super, super good at what they do and so is an expert. So circle back around to your podcast. See, it all circles back around at some point. Um, <laughs> I, I, so you guys have people guess over. What do your guests usually talk about? Do they talk about the specific items or just because you said this was a podcast where they travel around to get secret things and to I guess keep it out of harm's way so are you looking for people who are experts on those on those items or as someone who is not you take seen your the show? guests I'll take my guests yes so I uh I actually think Jillian named them this but so the podcast has sorry the tv show has <laughs> artifacts and that's the word for these historical objects that like have acquired science fictional powers. And so the guests that we have on our show, we call our artifact experts. And um, so essentially we, we are the, the majority of the episode, but we record interview clips, sort of like an English major writing an essay would incorporate quotes into their essay. Like we record interview clips asking specific questions about those artifacts and histories that we're talking about. And then we we bring probably about 20 minutes of each interview into the podcast and like we'll play the clip and then discuss it. Um, so that's like pretty much how it runs. And yeah, it's related episode specific to the, you know, the monster of the week, so to speak, the artifact of the week that the agents in the show have to track down. And then the other group of guests that we have on the show, um, we both try to book uh, <laughs> academic experts. I am less successful um, at that element just because I don't have as many ins and like, you know, degrees or something to point to that I am a reliable person, not just a rando who acquired this person's email. But I... Um, compensate I think for that by bringing in industry experts so we've had the star of the show on we've had um, <laughs> yeah. we did die a little bit <laughs> we did that was yeah that one was crazy because he reached out to us what um, so that was fun it was the best day it was so it was good like uh we were talking in the episode the character has a sobriety storyline and we realized it had a lot in common with the actor's real life sobriety story based on a tweet that he did recently. So we just, you know, said, Hey, we, we realized that this was a thing when we rewatched this episode and he had just celebrated, um, an anniversary of sobriety. That was a very big deal. So we just said, Hey, congratulations on this. Like, this is really a big deal. And we talked about this on our podcast. Thanks for being open about it and putting it out there. And then he was like, Hey, that's cool. Can I be on your podcast? And we were like, yep, yep, sure thing. Oh, my God. Um, but um, we also had the showrunner of the show on, um, and we just recorded an interview with a writer. And so we try to, just like between Miranda and I, keep ourselves balanced between the academic and the media studies part of it. We try to keep the guests relatively balanced too we don't have media industries experts every episode like we do with the academic experts but we do record full interviews as separate episodes when we are able to get the industry experts and then we get clips from them that we can use in the future for future episodes too 
that's amazing. Like, good for you guys. I'm just applauding you, <laughs> but I won't clap because my microphone hates clapping. Um, <laughs> but that's amazing. I'm so happy for both of you. I, man, when you guys came out to me first, I was like, hot damn, yay. And I just can't imagine how that feels when it's someone who, like, your podcast, like, revolves pretty much around this this head figure of the show. That's amazing. I, man, I have a question that I don't know if you, like, let me know if this is, like, overstepping bounds. Like, you don't want to say it because you don't want to make anyone mad. But who is, like, who is your guys' favorite guest? Like, you guys can have different answers. <laughs> well, I, like, they're all amazing but like it, it just depends like if we're thinking about the artifacts um there's so yes i have an idea that won't get either of us into trouble okay uh, help say me. your favorite you say your favorite media guest i'll say my favorite academic guest oh gosh <laughs> oh no okay yeah sure um yeah so oh boy I will say it's an easy guess, but Eddie McClintock is the name of the the lead character. The character's name is Pete Latimer in the show. He was on our, uh, you know, special bonus episode interview with the star. And it was just like I could have cried because we have also a mailbag episode and every fandom, you know, regardless of medium, has this experience of like when you're deeply involved in fandom, the characters on your show like become your family. They become like a comfort to you in your hard times. And like that's what like this was the show I watched in college when I was like confused about my identity and I was like uh, making new friends and away from home for the first time. And like so this, I, I mean, he's just an actor, but the character was like my source of comfort for like four years and then he showed up on my skype screen and he was so generous and like kind and really funny and like um really supportive of what we were doing too which is super cool because he's you know he's a, a straight white dude he's just somebody but he knows that what he um did on that show was really important like even though his character is straight and he's a straight guy he knows how much this show matters to queer people and like he acknowledges and wants to support all the people that like have flocked to this tv show which i think is like the best thing that that he could possibly do in that position so yeah seeing seeing him on skype and just chatting with him was like very very emotional for me and for me i'm gonna cop out and say i have two answers but we've had way more academic guests yeah, than we have had that. media guests so for me i think it's like a three-way tie one i i really like the experts that we have that tell me something I legitimately never would have known because I like to learn new things, but I also have my specific interests. And unless someone like knocks on the door to my brain and is like, here's another avenue to explore, I just won't know. Um, so we had a woman named Val Jean Jeffers on who wrote, um, I forgot the actual word for it. Steampunk. Steam funk, thank you. Um, I was like, not Afrofuturism, the opposite of that. Um, she wrote Steampunk Erotica, which is not something I would have ever known about. And she talked about it with such ease. And I think just being from Arizona, 
erotica was not something that was just a part of conversation. I don't know if it's the same way elsewhere, but it's a pretty conservative state. So, and I do like Afrofuturism, but I just didn't know that it existed in reverse. And then, of course, looking back, it's like, well, obviously it exists. People exist all the time. Um, but she brought some really great perspectives there. We had a guest expert on the Islamic Golden Age, which is fascinating and I never knew anything about. And then we had an expert who came on and talked about how much Lewis Carroll loves math. Ah, yes, that was so good. It was yeah. so fascinating. And every time, like, I don't typically conduct those interviews, but I do listen to them before we record our podcast so that I can refer back. And I just love listening to them. It's like I'm going back to school, but I don't have to do homework. I just get to listen to smart people talking. Yeah, and someday we're going to put, um, like, larger portions because sometimes the interview is too long to include all of it in our episode. But, like, the parts we don't include or can't include are just as good as all the rest. And it's like, oh, that person said so much cool stuff. Oh, my gosh, we have to use that. Like, so we want to share it, like, with our people because I think generally the people who like Warehouse 13 are kind of geeky and nerdy in this, like, we love history or we love the history of science, like those kind of things are really genuinely interesting to people who find the show interesting. And the show itself explicitly states that it's about exploring endless wonder and the idea of learning new things and exploring new things makes the world bigger to them and it makes the world bigger to us. And so I think that given an opportunity to make the world bigger, they will take in all the information they can. That was so beautiful, Jillian. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, I, I only have one question. Well, I have many questions, but the one I'm going to ask is, what is, what is, I, I'm about to say Afropunk. That is not what you just said. Oh, steampunk. Steampunk, steampunk there or Afrofuturism? Yeah. What is that? Which, which one? <laughs> well, Either so one I them. think... <laughs> Okay, so the thing that is, I think, very much less known is steampunk. So our TV show, Warehouse 13, is steampunk-inspired. And steampunk is the genre, especially an aesthetic genre, of, like, Victorian gadgets and gizmos and gears. Um, basically, the concept is, if instead of going towards like fossil fuels we had continued using steam as our source of energy and right. scientific um that what would it's a speculative future what would that future look like so steampunk is a future that never happened um that looks like a sort of mix between futuristic science and technology and victorian ideas and like images um, and so then what steam funk is, so our author, um, who, who discussed this with us is an African American version of that, where she says, well, you know, African Americans were around in the 1800s. Um, you know, in America, we had all of these great black, um, like leaders, like what if instead of tracing Sherlock Holmes down in the future, like we traced um, Frederick Douglass down in the future? Like what if these um, futures weren't whitewashed Victorian futures, but like 
futures of color where African-American um, people get to kind of play into that like Victorian future aesthetic. So I had also never heard of it, but I was um, like talking to other scholars because um, I also have a friend who does Southeast Asian steampunk. And I was like, I don't want to just do another um, European perspective on the Victorian future. I want to know what other countries and group identities would view the Victorian future as. So that's steampunk slash steampunk and how, especially how it ties into our show since our show is very often inspired by Victorian past technology. And then the flip side of that Afrofuturism, I engage with a lot less academically because I am not an academic, but if you've ever seen a Missy Elliott video, that I think is a very good example of that aesthetic and that imagining. So a lot of times when you think of a futuristic society, you think space age and like these new innovations and what is the Tesla, what's the version of a Tesla that's gonna exist in 300 years? What's the new innovative thing that's happening? But a lot of times that's traced back to white culture and white innovators. And if you look at Afrofuturism, it looks at black and brown people's innovations and what, how their culture will evolve over time and what that might look like in a few years. And again, I'm no expert on it, but I think it is a really cool thing to see in popular culture that is sort of evergreen because it's not always explored. And that's why whenever Missy Elliott comes out with a new video, the world is on fire because so few people are looking at the world and imagining a future in the way that she does and revolving around the people that she does. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Also, if you need a like really easy pop culture reference, Black Panther is yeah, is perfect. an Afrofuturistic like Wakanda, the idea that it is uh, an African country, but that they have innovated in their own way, like a beautiful science fiction future. Like, Which that's... also doesn't mean that black people's progress is distinct and separate from white people's progress. It just means that they're a part of the conversation that is often left out of yeah. imaginings of the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing now i really want to look into that because i've one i've never heard anyone explain steampunk in a way that made complete and utter sense like congratulations <laughs> you're the first person that's been able to explain that to me in a way that i don't see anyone having questions um but that's really amazing and i ugh, didn't think about it at all i small town texas it's i have no excuses yeah. for myself the internet exists we get it um, but that sounds amazing. I would very much gladly see something about that than see something about Sherlock Holmes, which we have literally rebooted maybe five times in the last five years. Um, yeah. Um, let me look up one of her books for you. So I can recommend two books if you want, like a non-whitewashed steampunk. Wait, what? recommendations come at the end. <laughs> Oh, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I was like, am I in trouble? So we won't no. do it now, but I will have it at the end for you. I'll look I mean, up the title of her I mean, if you have more book. recommendations, I guess I can't technically stop you, 
But, I mean, I don't no, want you to, like, get to that part and then you go, well, I already said it. No, I just, I just didn't, I didn't want to forget. But if you're going to ask me, I won't forget. Sorry. I mean, if you want to, like, pop it into the, the, the Skype chat, that way I can actually find it. Because you'll say it okay. and then I'll type it in wrong and I'll be like, I can't find it. But no that's really, you're not, like, you're not, like, sending me to one of her erotic books, right? <laughs> I will, I will send one she recommended. Um, I haven't actually read it myself. I can send you one that I can send you. I'll send you two. Okay. Okay. As long as it's not the erotic books, I, I think I'll be fine. Um, but that's really, really fascinating. Now I'm learning things that I've never knew existed before. And wow, there's just so much, so much you can do with that. I, I need to start listening to your podcast. I have no excuses anymore. You've already intrigued me since the moment you've opened your mouth. So I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine how good you guys are when you actually like. Do you guys make scripts for your podcast, or you just let it just let it go? We have a, a structure that's pretty careful. It's not a script per se, but like we're we're well organized. Yeah, we basically go beat by beat through the episode and then when an artifact is introduced or explained we then we'll include the clips from the person we interviewed and then we have some segments that we do we don't write down where they happen but you know if we get to a part where we decide oh yeah i really noticed this character's leather jacket in this scene we'll like have a fashion corner or if we see a guest star who really intrigues us we'll do um like an actor spotlight and when we have a new writer we'll do a writer spotlight but so it's it's free flowing with pretty pretty firm um guideposts i'd say right right like you you kind of have the idea what you want to get out of the episode um at this i know i need to watch this show now i need to watch the show and listen to your podcast because i feel like i need to take it all in like just, are you guys, like, episodic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you, go, you go episode by episode, or? Yeah, episode by episode, and there's only, like, 10 to 12 episodes a season. It's not one of those shows from the 2000s with, like, 24 episodes, so. Which is a you'll... shame sometimes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. There's 64 yeah. episodes total. Um, sometimes, if it's a really meaty episode, we'll split it into two parts, and then if we have a really great guest expert um, from media industries, we'll add them as a separate episode. But in general, there's about 64 episodes you can expect. And the show, just Warehouse 13, is free on Amazon Prime. So if you uh, want to stream it, that's where to go. Do I have Amazon Prime? I'm not even sure anymore. <laughs> you can also get it through IMDb Free Dive. So if you go to IMDb, really? you can watch it there, yeah. Man, how do they make any money off that? It doesn't matter. I'm going to go take advantage of it. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Let's let's circle back around here. Um, you guys mentioned okay. multiple times that when this show came about, or when you like why it meant so much to you, was because you were discovering yourselves around the same time that this representation was here. Do you want to talk about a little bit about your own coming out experience? Sure. Yeah. Um, who wants to go first? You want me to go first? Yeah. I feel like <laughs> mine is more underwhelming for some reason. So No, you just feel that, well, 
I I will speculate about why you feel that way later, but it's your, <laughs> it's your story to tell. Uh, but we, yeah, so we have been best friends for 10 years. So if we are chatting with each other in that way, that's why. Um, so my, yeah, my coming out or like is also sort of underwhelming because I was just sort of like always attracted to men and women in a way that made it easy to like blend in because... I'm very chatty and bubbly and like men would ask me out and I would date them and I did like them and it it like was something that worked for me. So I was like, oh yeah, like I'm a straight person. But like the funny thing was that I wrote in our questionnaire, like I really remember having severe crushes on girls from the time I was in like first grade. Um, and like, especially like very, very femme girls, like very pretty girls. Like that was always like, I wanted to be around pretty attractive women and like talk to them and like buy them flowers and like really silly things. But the thing that made it difficult for me was that regardless of gender, I wasn't a very sexual person. And so the like narratives that people were giving me because I grew up in an extremely conservative Christian religion, like everyone told me like, all you're ever gonna want is sex. And for me it was like, but I don't want sex with the boys, but also I don't want sex with the girls. So I didn't think I was queer. Um, I did have like queerness on the radar as existing, but it, it wasn't like made legible to me in a way outside of just sex. And I think that's like really unfortunate in the culture 20 years ago, obviously things are different now, but in, in like mainstream conservative Arizona, the only things I had access to were just like very hypersexualized. And so I was dealing with this struggle of like, I struggled. So the timeline's kind of hard because like I had boyfriends, I wasn't unhappy, but like, I also kept feeling like, well, but I want to date girls, but I don't want to like be super physical. So I, I don't want to like be untruthful. Like it was so hard. And it was only in late, I don't know, 2012, where I started hearing um, through the internet and also through Jillian, the language of like the ace and demi community. And it was so important for me recognizing my queerness to recognize that like sex and physicality and even romance is not the end all be all of a relationship. And what I was desiring was I was desiring romantic relationships regardless of gender altogether. Um, and then just sort of, it wasn't a priority to me, the physical, part of the relationship or the physical embodiment of the person. And I think that was the hard thing for me to realize was that like, I think a lot of bi and ace people like have this line where they can't figure out, do I like everyone or no one? And the answer <laughs> is like, yes, actually. The answer is just yes, because, because I don't have a preference. I like everyone. Um, and so it took me a very long time to like use that language. And so now 
Um, because the relationships I have had have been with men and with women. So I usually just call myself a bi person, but like my sexuality is more complicated and it's like informed by these understandings of relationships that come from other queer communities. And then like, you know, whatever me and whatever me and my partner are doing in our physical relationship is whatever we're doing. Like I'm very sex positive and like, um, you know, and I just genuinely am attracted to a lot of people, but don't think of myself as like a lot of the language I heard about bi people in the 2000s was like promiscuity and like um, high sex drive. Yikes. Obviously, we know that's not true. And like, I just I couldn't bring myself to call myself bi because I was very monogamous and I was very like romantic and hopeless and it just took me way longer than it should have because of my upbringing because of being so conservative and like being in such a cutoff um you know public school with abstinence only education and like no recognition of queer people it was like the end of college when I was like oh wait a second like bisexuality is not what I thought it was and so like I can use this label to empower myself and like recognize that I am a very loving person who is, I would say, like, attracted to 5% of women and 1% of men and then a couple <laughs> of people in between. Like, that's just, that's who I am. And it's not, like, need sex all the time, which was the horrible, wrong stereotype that kept getting fed to me um, personally. So I, I want our bi listeners to know that I, like, I know how harmful that is and I never want to perpetuate it. Um, but it was what I thought growing up. And then I also think the other thing that you and I both have in common that I want to make sure I mention at some point is we talk a lot nowadays about sexual attraction and orientation and romantic attraction and orientation, yeah. but I think something that is super important to both Miranda and I is something that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, which is aesthetic attraction. Oh, yeah. Like, just the draw to look at someone and like Miranda I had that experience of well am I queer am I not queer and I would say like how do you know if you're gay to my friends or my mom and my parents are super supportive and I'm so lucky to have them and they would be like well if you want to have sex with men that's fine if you want to have sex with women that's fine um but do you want to have sex with women and I was like no and they're like, well, then you're not queer. And I was like, oh, well, that was easy. That was a very easy answer because it's a yes or no question. Like, it didn't occur to me that it could be more nuanced. And it didn't occur to my parents that it could be more nuanced, especially because while Miranda and I grew up in the same state and with the same, like, societal level social pressures, my family has always been very much about accepting the queer community. And my aunt ran a queer film festival in Arizona in the nineties, just that hardcore. Yeah. Um, but because of that, my experience and my parents' experience and my whole family's experience of queerness was very binary. It was things with very clear labels. There is bi, there is gay, there is lesbian, there is straight. But these things along the spectrum were harder to navigate. Um, trans was always something that we talked about and knew about in my house. Um, 
And occasionally my parents would be like, do you feel like a boy or do you feel like a girl? And I was like, I just feel like me. I'm fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what I didn't realize was motivating me when I was asking, well, am I queer or am I not queer? Wasn't whether or not I wanted to have sex with these women I saw. It was... I wanted to stare at them all the time. I vividly remember having the <laughs> biggest crush on Moulin, uh, on um, Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge. Her hair was amazing. Her lipstick was amazing. And yeah, I could imagine kissing her, but I could imagine kissing everyone. So I just thought everyone could imagine kissing everyone, and that didn't count as sexual. And <laughs> I didn't want to have sex with her, but I didn't particularly want to have sex with anyone um I consider myself demisexual um I'm very sex positive don't get me wrong like I support anyone's desire to do anything that everyone involved is consenting to but um I just didn't want to have sex with women so I thought that was the answer and it's not that I necessarily wanted to have sex with Ben it was more that the things that I envisioned wanting in my life seemed very heteronormative. I want and still want to, you know, get married one day, have kids, whatever that looks like in my life in the future. Um, And that was really as far as I thought about it. And so I thought, well, if I don't want to have sex with women and I want to get married and have kids, then I have to be straight, right? (laughs) And it didn't, I know. And it really didn't occur to me until I was much older that something was wrong with the fact that every time I went on a date, I went home and had a panic attack and cried. Like, no matter how well it went, it was just... And there's this other complication, not complication, another factor in my dating life that Miranda and I have talked about a lot is that I'm Jewish. So a lot of the times I will go out on a date with someone and the person I'm on a date with is not setting the same expectations of what they want out of the date as I do. I'm like, I would like to go have a good time. Um, I would like to meet someone who I connect with on an emotional level. Um, And I'd like to see where it goes from there. And so in addition to the very Demi experience of halfway through a date, realizing that this person wanted to have sex and I just, no matter how much I liked spending time with them, did not want to do that there was this other time this other thing that would happen where I'd go on a few dates with someone and we'd be taking it slow and it doesn't matter to me if the person I'm dating is Jewish or not and I would know going in that person A or person B would be Christian or Catholic or whatever And, but I'd be like, this is fine. I don't care because we're going slow. We're getting to know each other. All the things a Demi person wants before sensing the, this person wants to have sex with me vibe. And then they would either say explicitly or not so explicitly that they were just interested in trying someone Jewish, which is why actual, I'm sorry. I didn't understand that was a Man, I was about to say something stupid again. I was about to say I didn't understand that was a desirable, like, flavor. What I meant to say without <laughs> sounding like an idiot. Jillian's a very desirable person. <laughs> okay, what I, I, I didn't understand, exactly. 
I, I guess what I didn't understand, I don't understand why people put other people in categories like that. Like, oh, I want to try someone yeah. like, like this or try someone, I guess I I personally don't understand, understand that whole, oh, I want to try being with someone that's Jewish. Like, I, I guess yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think why it was specifically that? that I was Jewish. I don't think it's that specifically that I was Jewish. I think it was that I was different from them in a not immediately visible way. Um, for the most part. So I dated um, an Indian guy for a while and we were great. I really liked him and his really soft beard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, then his parents came to visit and oh, no. yeah, and they were there to like see his brother and catch up with him and they were coming from India and he made it clear that they wouldn't approve of him dating someone Jewish. And so I was like, well, I can't keep being with you if that's something you're okay with but so that was a more rare thing where like my difference as a non-indian person and a jewish person was clearly legible to the person i was dating but more often it was you know someone who was the son of a pastor or who grew up in a church and they would date because they wanted to like try something that was outside of what they grew up dating I mean, and then they'd realize i don't i yeah, I don't feel comfortable being in a relationship with someone who doesn't share my beliefs. I've had a guy on a first date ask me if I wanted to raise my kids Jewish. And it's mind-blowing to me that it became such a huge aspect of my dating life because I, well, I identify as Jewish and I'm practicing. I'm also very casual about it. It's not something that I expect other people to be um but so th that was just like a complication in my journey to finding queerness of am i feeling discomfort because i'm feeling like someone's using me for sex or using me for a cultural experience or am i just uncomfortable with the way dating culture is structured so I, it took me a longer time to figure it out and what i realized was because i I never felt like I was asexual. I, I could always picture myself in an ideal world with a great person um, really enjoying, not just participating, but enjoying a sexual relationship with someone. But I had to get to a point where I liked them as a person. The idea of a one night stand isn't just unappetizing to me. It's terrifying. And I, I don't right. know how else to describe it. Right. Um, and so... I had no frame of reference for knowing that that was a type of queerness because it wasn't any of the things I ever saw represented. And so when I realized that was a thing, I was like, okay, well, I'm glad I know this about myself. I will stop trying to use dating sites and I'm just going to try and go explore things that I love and it made me feel so much freer like I could go see Shakespeare in the park and you know talk to people and try and make friends I play Pokemon Go with people by my office and I meet people there and it's like there's not that pressure of but how can I find a man and or woman from or non-binary person from this experience in order to get to this end life goal I want and that made me feel free and I was just pretty content to only tell Miranda because I was happy I'd finally figured it out. <laughs> um, but 
then my mom would be like, so have you met anyone? I'm just worried because you haven't talked about going on a date yet. I know you said you wanted these things from your life and, you know, just those kind of things. And so that was, I came out more out of frustration. (laughs) And I was just like, you have to stop asking me this because it's causing me so much anxiety to have to constantly say, no, I haven't met someone. I'm not dating someone. And I'm never going to. Like, I'm going to probably just because of how I am meet someone, know them for a while, and then realize I feel comfortable with them in that way. And that's okay. And that's just another version of normal. Um, and I just, I couldn't, she she never did it because you're my daughter and you have to get married. It was, you've expressed a desire to get married and have kids in the future. So what are you doing to get on that? Have, do we have an action plan? Um, <laughs> and that was just so not my way at all. Um, so I did... I just, she was talking to me about something and then she brought it up when I was in Whole Foods um, and she lives in Arizona still. I live here in California and I just remember putting my groceries in the car, putting down my phone, texting Miranda and telling her I was going to do it. And, <laughs> and I just called my mom and I was like, you have to stop. You have to stop. And here's why. And here's how I am. And it went not great at first she was like I think you're just scared of being vulnerable and I think you just want and it wasn't any of those things it was she was like you're just using it as an excuse to not put yourself out there was some of the things that she said um nothing directly harmful but also sort of not really believing demisexuality was a thing and saying the things that a lot of people say of you know well you just haven't found the right person or it's just like this for everyone and I know I know that's not true now, but it gets in your head. But I think the thing that makes my family really great is that when I said, no, you're wrong, she would say, well, explain to me why, and then listen to the answer. And it took a while for her to fully wrap her brain around what I was saying, but she got there. And I think it's the duty of people who are lucky like I am to have really open families to educate people who are open to it. I think that there is a lot to say about the argument that it's not our job to educate you because people who are in certain positions are always put in the position of educating others. But I think that if you are born lucky like I am with people who love you and who want to understand, you should put your best foot forward in helping those people understand so that they'll be there to stand up for the other people who aren't as lucky. Does that make any sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you're, so, I, th- I think your story is so important, Jill, because it is far less um, talked about demisexuality as like how, like when you say like, I had these panic attacks on these dates, like someone out there is having those panic attacks too. And now they can be like, oh, maybe this is why, like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not your fault that the relationship structures presented to you are not the option that works for your identity. Thank you. And like, also it's just, I want to tell anyone who might be listening and who might be struggling Because I just for a long time thought I was just an ally who like understood, which is fine to be. But for anyone listening, if you're going on dates and you're feeling something 
deep inside that you aren't enjoying it and you're doing it because you, you think you're supposed to because at some point you will enjoy it with someone take an opportunity to become introspective look up different types of sexualities and attractions and what that means because it's not it's not normal and i know that there's no firm rule on what normal is but it's not normal to routinely put yourself in situations that you hate and that you feel uncomfortable and sad in just because other people think it's something you're supposed to be doing that's the only thing that's not normal all sexualities are normal all perspectives are normal making yourself sad to please other people isn't that's very good applause (laughs) more applause that's amazing you guys are absolutely amazing and I don't even know how to follow up from that because that's that's freaking amazing yeah well I'm enjoying this to follow up, I think, like like I said, that sort of bi and ace spectrum people face a lot of similar erasures or similar like, oh, you're just confused or you're not sure. You have to figure out like what neat box you fall into. But like none of the boxes are neat. Um, I love, and everyone has probably seen this, but I use it in my LGBT lit class, the pie chart. Um, and it's like a teeny sliver of one color and a huge amount of another color and like a teeny sliver of the opposite color in the other way. Anyways, it's just all different varieties of a two color pie chart and it points and it says all bisexual. Like you, you know, the thing that happened to me is I kept getting people say, oh, but you've dated men. So like you're just experimenting or like, well, you liked that guy you dated. So you're just trying something out, but you're going to go back to dudes or what, you know, whatever these things people say. And it's like, no, that doesn't erase like one partnership doesn't erase any of your other identity markers or partnerships. And like, um, I think solidarity for between people who are like in a, a nebulous area is like really important um by pan ace arrow like all of us just need to come together and be like we we understand what it's like to like not fit super neat but then you find other people that have the same feelings as you and you're like oh yeah this is another type of queerness this is another type of normal identity to have like yeah yeah it's it's so much more about a spectrum of things yes than it is about branches of things and it it is strange how comforting categories are to other people like I after coming out as Nemi to my mom casually mentioned in a conversation a woman I found attractive or was attracted to I don't even remember who it was it was just something I saw and I was like oh by the way this person's really hot and my mom's like wait I thought you were demisexual and I was like no I am but I also (laughs) am attracted to women and her face lit up because she was like this is something I understand. Oh like, my God. Yeah. So it wasn't, it, it was like, well, why didn't you tell me earlier? It's like, I said I was queer. And she's like, well, I thought that just meant this one thing. And then she was like, well, and I used to live in West Hollywood, which is an area of California that is very known for its affiliation and support of gay people. It's where the pride parade is held. I used to live there, but it was just too expensive. So I left um, and live in a different place. But when I told her I was attracted to women and she's like, 
why did you tell me that when you were still living in West Hollywood? Like, I would have looked up meetup groups. Like, she was just like, <laughs> oh my God. And I think it's just because, like, my mom is a very action oriented person. And so she likes to support me with specific, tangible things. And so since demisexuality is, is you know, I don't need support. I just need to not be pushed towards something that I'm not. Um, but she was like, but I don't know how I can figure in and be helpful in that. <laughs> but I can help you with this. Um, <laughs> And I talk a lot about my mom, and that's just because we talk all the time. Um, we're very close, but I'm I'm also very close with my dad, and he's very supportive. But he is more of a sit back and listen kind of guy in regards to this only. He's an interrupter in every other category of life. <laughs> but um, he's just like the only things he's ever really asked is like, well, why do you feel you need the label demisexual? Like, why is it important? And I was like, it's only important to me because it indicates my separation from something that's expected. You know, I don't think a lot of times, and I've talked with Miranda about this a lot, coming out is often framed in terms of oppression or in terms of like this duty to a larger community. And it can have very strong elements of both of those things. And I don't want to negate that at all, but I also see coming out as a gift to both yourself and another person that you're freeing yourself of a need to hide a part of yourself or giving someone else precious information about you. And so for me, it was more those latter two options rather than I felt I had to, for the greater good of queerness come out, or I had to, be free of these bonds of oppression, which wasn't really my experience. It was just more a day-to-day -day frustration of the kinds of conversations I was having and the kinds of experiences I was going through on dates. So sorry if I got on a tangent there. No, I think your tangent no. was so good. And I just like, as your best friend, I'm just so proud of you. And so like, Thank I don't you. know, like, <laughs> but I still struggle. I, t I tell Miranda all the time. I'm like, am I queer though? Like, but that's the thing is that like, <laughs> there's that there's, there's pressure to fit in no matter whose community you're a part of. And so whenever you go to a space where you see queer people radically supporting all other queer people, you know, it's why I am always like, I'm very femme and cis and like, I'm a very, very predictable feminine identity in the world. But if you come for non-binary people or you come for trans people, I am going to fight that fight to the end because I think that we need to like, what's the word? We need to radically include everybody. And if you're kicking someone out of your LGBT plus bubble or your feminist bubble, like that, that has, that has been, you know, the downfall of so many relevant necessary communities so we need to radically have everybody on the same side and not make anyone feel like they're not queer enough yeah and like i think non-binary is the best example of that because becoming more accepting doesn't mean adding a third category to the binary it yeah. means erasing the boundaries completely yeah, 
Obviously, Jillian. I'm sorry. <laughs> that came out sarcastic. I was totally serious. <laughs> I, know, I know. I totally. I understand. I like, understand. Yeah. Like I'm. I'm with you. And like, yeah. We just. We just love. And we on our podcast talk about like if you identify as queer, um, we welcome you. Like if you're a bi person with a different uh, gendered partner, like you are just as queer as if you were with a similar gendered partner. Like don't. Don't let someone tell you that you're like not enough of anything. Like we're erasing that necessity to be something. Oh, and to bring it back to the question. Oh, boy, <laughs> I lost the question ages ago. The question was like about um, how we talked about relating to the show and it helping us on our journeys. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> um, I can give an answer that's not spoilery because of a specific character. Miranda, you can decide if you want to spoil or not. I I won't because it's not relevant to mine. The Warehouse 13 is not sex-driven at all. Characters have relationships, and there's definitely um, a queer relationship within it that people do ship, which is fine, but it's not the main thrust of the story, and I didn't realize how at ease that put me as a viewer. Um the main stories are about friendships and how friends can become family and the deep, deep meaning of non-sexual, non-romantic relationships and the role that those play in your lives. And I was so drawn to the show because I was like, well, I just really like this story and I really like that these friendships are represented. And it wasn't until later when I realized that I was queer, that I understood that it envisioned a world where your main journey as a human didn't have to revolve around a sexual relationship, which isn't something that a lot of shows do. Um, and as a result, isn't something that a lot of people know as an option for them. I, I tell Miranda all the time, like, Romance is great. Love is great. It's so important, but it's not the only important thing, and it's not more important than all your other relationships. And I like that this is the story that the show chose to tell. It was romance exists as a part of a larger, rich life full of other wonders. Yeah. And I think mine mine is actually not what everyone probably thinks it is because there is a bi woman in season two. But I just had a crush on a character who is presented to us as a straight woman. Um, <laughs> like, it, she doesn't self-identify at any point in the show, but I just, she was my same age. The character's name is Claudia. She's very beautiful. She's a tech nerd. She's super smart. She wears the cutest outfits always like vests and like denim and like chucks and like I you know I watched this show and there were a lot of times when I was younger when I would say like I would I would erase my queerness by being like well I just want to wear a coat like her coat or I just want to like have a job like her job I don't I'm not attracted to her I just I like what she's doing oh and I God. looked at this this I know I know like I promise I don't feel this way anymore but I think it's important to like be really open about having it like I didn't realize I was queer until like my mid-20s like people right. and I I was the whole time like I definitely like 
the whole time was very queer and just like kept not understanding what I was feeling in myself. And this one character who's not even the queer person in the show, I was like, I can't deny it. I, I am attracted to her. Now I have to figure out what that means. Um, and again, I know uh, that that's different than like actually being in a relationship with a person or having a crush on a friend who you can date because this character was fictional. Um, but what it opened up to me uh, was that I was like, no, I, I would very much like to date women. And, and that's like, even though I've had fine relationships with men, like I'm not, I'm not being accurate if I just say, oh, I just like her shirt. Like, no, I like her. I like her a lot. Um, and you so, like her shirt because she's wearing it. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, and then that was the funny thing is that later the queerness became explicit in the show and Jamie Murray is another uh, famous uh, actress who's very beautiful and is in Warehouse 13 and I have a crush on her too. But it wasn't the obvious representation. It was just like, I now like am coming to terms with recognizing that that this is a part of my my identity and it's great and I should go for it like I shouldn't feel like I have to erase it based on my previous relationships I should just like go and and that's kind of what happened I was like well I'm in college full steam ahead like let's find myself and like be happy with myself and I did that and then I'm so much happier for it. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. You you guys, I I love this. This is fantastic. I I could not ask for a better guess. I man, you're going to spoil me and I man. <laughs> we don't want to take up so much time. I am watching the clock, but we love to talk about these things and I think uh, I haven't listened to all of your podcasts, but I have listened in the past and I saw how people responded to um, like your, I don't know if you were at Clexicon, but you were tweeting about it and like people were talking to you and I was like, I love Clexa. Like I love that people are finding this space and like finding it useful. So I'm trying to remember Clexicon and I honestly, so much of it is a blur. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like I went there and I just was zooming around so much and I just, I just hardly remember any of it, but I just do remember. The one thing I do remember from Clexicon is we went out to dinner. I went out to dinner with other podcasters, and we like left the hotel, which had been like surrounded by gay people. Like you could feel it, and you were <laughs> surrounded by your people. And we left the hotel. We went to another casino, and that one I had never been to. And we were like going to a restaurant inside there, and you could just feel that you weren't there anymore. You could just feel that you weren't around your people anymore. And it's one of the first times I've ever felt that because being in small town Texas, I am lucky. I have had the freak experience of running into another queer person recently. <laughs> like without looking for them. You know, when you're with your people, you feel like you can tell them things and you feel so open. And it was like, even though I was I was pretty afraid to approach anyone because I don't know these people. <laughs> like, I've seen their handles online and stuff, and it's just still like, uh, I don't know, meeting them in person is like a whole different animal. But it's <laughs> you feel safe, and that's the feeling of inclusion and safety that I just have not felt 
anywhere else. And until I go to another convention that makes me feel the same, I'm unfortunately going to just keep talking about Clexicon. It's, <laughs> it's a thing. Just they go they to don't... West Hollywood at any time of year. Just Man, go to West Hollywood. If I could afford <laughs> to go to California, I'd be there. I would be yeah. there. I, 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 no, keep going, Jill. Mine's oh, going. I was just going to say, when Miranda used to come visit me when I lived in West Hollywood, there was a shop, like, right on the corner of my block that had a sign out front that said, dogs and straight people welcome, and it was the <laughs> best place. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah, there's dogs welcome! Yeah! Yes. <laughs> and straight people. Like, you're allowed to come here to straight people. I just like that it was a space that could, like, get away with that. It made me so happy. Oh my yeah. god, I can't imagine a sign like that being up. <laughs> anywhere around me like people people like I don't remember when this was it was like probably years ago there there was something about um people were making a statement against the pink tax because it's stupid that our products are taxed more for for women and stuff like it's it's fucking dumb I still don't understand how that's still a thing and they were they were saying something about oh it's it's women's day here or that men have to like are the that men's items are taxed more on this day and there was so much backlash off of that and that just makes me think of what you were you guys were saying earlier about you know they feel oppressed now because we're finally branching out and giving the torch to somebody else and i just can't imagine that being anywhere like so it is time for the guest to guest question because uh, we will have this conversation all day. We would keep it going on all day, but no one would listen to it, and that would be a shame. Um, <laughs> so we'll move on to our guest-to-guest question. Uh, the guest-to-guest question is where my guest from my last podcast asked my guest from this one a question without knowing who each other are. And sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, that's true. They don't, because her question... You know, sometimes these questions, it's amazing how people without knowing each other will tell each other like just give the perfect question and I think this is like the 10% where it's not the perfect question and it's we're just gonna see where it goes because it doesn't fit you guys I'm I'm really excited it doesn't fit you guys at all and I think it's fine um last episode we were talking to one of the hosts of the Herb Fiction Addiction podcast and their question to you which most of our conversation was about um, they're expecting. So it was a lot It was a lot of baby talk, which was very <laughs> fun to sit in um, because babies are not my thing either, but learning experience. I'm hoping to get that same learning experience from, I almost called it Steam Afro again. That's not what it's called. I just need to say the question and stop Steam with these rambling. Steampunk, yeah. Not steampunk, the Afropunk. That's not Oh, Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism. Yeah. <laughs> if I had a booper reel, we'd be in gold right now. <laughs> um, so, and their question to you was, what well, was one, if you had a baby, did you want to know the gender? But since I'm assuming neither one of you have had a child, uh, is, is the assumption correct? Am I just talking out of my ass right now? No, we don't no, have you, children. Your assumption is correct. Okay. So, if you were to have a child, would you want to know the baby's gender and why? I can answer that a hundred percent would not because I want to impose anything on them. I just, my mother's daughter, I like to have a starting point and a frame of reference and I would let the child know throughout their life. Like, yo, let me know if I got this wrong, but (laughs) I, I just, I just like to know things 
because um, one of my best friends actually has two kids, and before she has her first kid, or had her first kid, I sat down with her and talked, and I was like, have you thought about what if your son is gay, or what if your son decides she's your daughter? Like, have you thought about this at all? And, like, I've known her, and we've been best friends since we were five years old, so it's one of those conversations that I think only we could have had. And she was like, I mean... I don't want that for my kid just because I think it will make their life harder. But in terms of my relationship to the kid, I won't care. And I think that as long as that's your perspective, that you're okay with whatever your child turns out to be or chooses to be or anything in between, um, you're allowed as a parent to be excited about small things and, you know, Sometimes having a frame of reference or a starting point of gender can help. And it doesn't mean that you are a bad person or won't love your child. I don't know. But that's my answer. That's I would definitely a great answer. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, my answer is also un, unrelated to actual babies. Um, but I am an avid player of The Sims. And I love naming things. I love naming people. Um, of course, as the question, you know, as Jillian said... If my child did not feel that the name I gave them was appropriate, they are welcome to change their name. Um, but I would really get a kick out of picking a name for a child, just as I really enjoyed naming my pet and naming my Sims. And yeah, that. So, like that would be the only place I would be coming from. Yeah, I think it's more for you. Like knowing the gender is for you. And as long as you don't transfer that expectation onto this other living person, then you're good. Yeah. That was a good answer. I wasn't sure where it was going to go cuz if I if I had that <laughs> answer, I would have been like, well, I'm not having children and I know I shouldn't say that because I spoke I've spoken to women who like they turned 30 and all of a sudden they were like, "Oh my god, I I want to have a baby," even <laughs> though they were very anti-baby. The I mean, like, it's forever. it's just a feel how you feel. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Yeah, and I this is some soul searching I'm going to need, but I don't think I would care. To be honest, I think I would be amazed that I was capable of bringing life into this world, period. <laughs> and that's that's as far as it goes. I would just be like, wow, is this a thing? Also, where is that money going to come from to make this a thing? Um, that's reality that we don't want to touch, though. <laughs> I was viewing it as a solely theoretical question. I, I wasn't viewing it as, like, an expectation that either of us will or must have children. Like, it's just a question. It's basically. It just goes back to what we've been talking about as, like, people on the age spectrum to various degrees like we're all just people and yeah. your relationships to people are whatever and what you take for your own enjoyment is fine and as long as you're not putting an undue burden on anybody else do whatever yeah yes or i like that are, i'm sure we've got a lot of witches listening because the queer people and witches are a, a venn diagram with a uh and yeah. that's the witch motto is harm it none do what you will like that's Kind of what we all believe in. Oh, yeah. I like that. I need to look into the witch community more now because I, I didn't even know. I didn't even know we intersected. Like, I kind of maybe. got that vibe, but at the same time, it's like I don't really look at it. Maybe um, it's mostly by people. I'm not sure, but I think there's a lot of queer witches. I think it's well documented. I mean, I need... I have other friends who say, you know, the one way, one of the sure ways you can know that you were queer is if you had a Wicca phase, a Wicca phase <laughs> at some point. 
like if there was some if there was some Wicca phase that you had, like whether it be collecting crystals or like actually looking into this occult stuff, you know, that's how you generally know. And I'm like, wow. I mean, <laughs> someone else said if yeah, you had. Sorry, someone else said if you had an Egyptian obsession at one point, that that was probably a good way to know too. And I'm like, well, I've been pegged for both counts. I don't know. I Greek mythology is a sure indicator. Man, Greek oh, yeah. mythology. I don't understand how people can teach Greek mythology and leave out all of the gay that is all over <laughs> Greek mythology. Like by lying, they teach it by lying. I like let's just. <laughs> Sure, you'll tell me about Hades and Persephone and the time that freaking Zeus seduced this woman in the form of a geese, but you're not going to tell me about the rest? Fair. I heard that someone, that some scholars still argue about whether or not Sappho was gay, and I'm like, really, though? I, are they scholars? Because... I don't, I don't nah. think, I don't think, I don't think, I mean, I've talked to, oh my god, you guys would love talking to... Um, the people who do the History is Gay podcast, holy crap, They we literally had the same conversation where they were talking about how historians were looking at Sappho's work and stuff, and they'll look at other works referring to Sappho, and someone made, like, this, this essential fan fiction. They called it essentially, like, historical <laughs> fan fiction of Sappho being with a guy, and if you translated his name into English from Greek, it literally just means man of huge dick. Like, that's all his name meant. Like, it was clearly satire. The whole fucking thing was very clearly satire. And it's like... That's so funny. You need to tell me, Miranda, do do historians not have, like, satire lenses? Like, can they not see any satires in front of their face? I will say um, scholars... Women and queer scholars tend to have better social skills and social Mm -hmm. lens filters than just male scholars. Sorry, dudes. But, like, just social skills in general, I think women and queer people have, like, this impetus put on them to, like, be better communicators. And men don't. And so men miss a lot of stuff, especially smart men who think they know everything. They miss the social cues a lot. Like, that's actually probably true. (laughs) Oh, my God. This... We could have this conversation all day. So what will be your question for our next guest? Here's an idea I had, Jill. Okay. Based on this conversation, we could ask the next guest their favorite historical queer person. Yes, down, co-signed. That's my, my question. Yes, your favorite queer person from history, fictional or real? Sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Fictional? Okay, okay. So this is where I've become the bad guy, and I'm going to turn your question around on you and ask, what is your guys' favorite queer people for, person from history? People? Yeah, queer people, that works. Oh, boy. Gotta I, I have so many. It's not that I don't have to <laughs> my own question. I've got, yeah. pick, I've got to pick a good one. Because we already we also already talked about Oscar Wilde, and that's too easy of an answer. I have an answer, but I don't know the name of the person. Uh, uh, so I was listening to Miranda might actually know the name of my person, okay? Because it's a Victorian. Oh, uh, yeah. But I, Green. I don't, I don't know their name. Um, but if you listen to Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets, which is a podcast, it's available on Audible. Um, just for reference, 
there is an episode about queer identities. There's two episodes. There's about female queer identities and male queer identities and the overlap in that um, in the Victorian age. And he talks about it. And there is just this woman. He tells the stories of these two women, one of whom is like, yo, I'm gay and I know it and I'm here for it. And then there's this other woman who would write in her diary like, I think I like women, but I think I can also maybe not. I think that might be a bad thing. And I just like have so much love in my heart for her because she represents, I would say the vast majority of queer women in history. And when I was hearing her story um, as just a diarist who was struggling with her identity of, am I queer? Am I not queer? Like those are the stories I never heard. And so when I heard hers, I was like, it's so nice to know. Because you hear people all the time say, I knew from the time I was five years old, I like had a crush on my preschool teacher or whatever. Um, but for every one of those, there's a 300 people who are like, I think maybe, but maybe I, I'm bad. And I'm bad? I just, I, yeah, like I just love her for putting that into words and helping us get to a place now where we can talk openly about the I don't know maybe feelings that we have that get us to accepting queerness I feel like that's a cop-out answer but it's really really my true answer it's the first time learning about a queer person had an an impact on me outside of wow that's a really important person that's a really cool story in terms that was the first time I was like well that's that's really important for queerness. So I'm, I'm sorry if that's a cop-out answer, but that's my no, answer. No, no, but I do want to know, like, I do want, like, to find that episode and listen to it now, because that's very interesting. I know. I was trying to guess all of the things you would guess, but none of their names I knew, because um, there's also the story, and you had told me, Jill, there was a person who um, was male-identifying and, like, served in a war and voted and did all this stuff, yeah. and upon their death... They, uh, the coroner found that that person had been assigned female at birth, but lived their entire life, his entire life as a man. And so he had actually been the first assigned female at birth person to vote um, because he lived legally as a man and got to like do all of this amazing stuff as a trans person in a time when like no one had the vocabulary for transness. Um, and, and, but the thing is some people did know Sure. I don't, you told me the story. It's like an episode of a podcast or something. Yeah. I can't remember that person's name either because I was just so fascinated by the story. It took on like mythical properties, not attached to a human person. But um, yeah, the cool thing was, yeah, it was widely known when the coroner did the autopsy that this person was not assigned the gender they presented as. But the cool thing was a lot of people in their community had known because before the person went off to war slightly, they presented as female still. And then they were just like, I'm a man though. And because there was no vocabulary for transness or non-binariness, everyone was like, well, I I like you as a person. So I guess that's fine if you're still the same person. And they were just like, we're fine. Just changing everything that they knew about them because they just saw the person was unchanged. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes just like, we know people like Oscar Wilde who went to prison for being gay and like having relationships with men. But then there's just like these, these low key individual humans who have like lived, lived queer lives in the past and are somewhat unremarkable, but like 
that's the history that's like our history like would you're just people just people doing stuff all the time yeah. um so that's yeah that's i think and obviously um a person could look up some key google strokes and find the people we've described their people yeah yeah Sorry, I feel like my answer was lame, but no, I think your answer was really smart. It was good. Okay. <laughs> and what about you, Miranda? Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna cop out by agreeing with Jillian. Um, but if you want another person, there is a 19th century writer named Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman, and she actually wrote like an asexual lesbian story back when people didn't have that vocabulary either. So the story is called Two Friends. And it's about two women who are definitely in love and definitely like in a sort of like butch femme marriage, but they are not sexually attracted to each other and they don't have like physical intimacy. And I always teach it in my class because my students, because we live in California near Los Angeles and it's a very diverse area and people are very aware of queer identities. So I'm very, um, what's the word, spoiled in that my students aren't like when I teach queer stories like they have they have come to my class excited to learn queer stories but like uh showing people that like asexuality demisexuality these newer terms are not new concepts they're just now taking a hold in our vocabulary but like this is like a story from the 1800s and these women are clearly ace women who love each other and the author who wrote the story was certainly she identified as um, I forget her terminology like they had all these weird euphemisms for being a lesbian in the 1800s but she identified in that way but yet we could also kind of read her work and be like I think she might have just been an ace lady and also a lesbian and like that is an intersection of identity that exists too like you don't have to not call yourself a lesbian just because you're ace or demi, like, or any of those other identities. Like, you can have these multiple layers to yourself. So um, you can read her story. It's very adorable. <laughs> what is it called again? You said two friends. It, two friends, yeah. Uh, two friends. <laughs> I, I love that meme anywhere where yes. it's like, it's like, it, like I, I, I particularly enjoy... Um, there are the que- the historical painting blogs or the, the Twitters yeah. that do historical paintings. And I particularly like the ones that focus on the very, very, very clearly queer ones. And it's usually titled <laughs> something like Two Friends or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, I love that. I love that every time. I just, That's it will never not oh. be funny to me. They always do. They did it with Emily Dickinson, too. She writes these sappy letters like, I send you a kiss, my love. And everyone's like, that's her best friend. And I'm like, really? I send you a kiss, my love? No, that's not her best friend. She pines um, over <laughs> the loss of her best friend a lot. Like, Yeah, wow. She's, like, really obsessed. She's really secretive, too, about this friendship. She doesn't want anyone to find out, like, especially the friend's <laughs> husband. Like, man, that's a weird friendship. I thought the friend's husband was her brother. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, but but still, yeah. I yeah. I I don't foreground that because the woman Susan and Emily Dickinson are not blood relatives, although this is her brother's wife. So I just try to not foreground the family connection because they're not biological relatives, and right, right. I don't I don't want to make it sound creepy. 
Um, like people marrying their cousins. Like people marrying yeah. their cousins, exactly. Like, I mean, I do think regardless of gender, you shouldn't um, cheat on your, uh, or you shouldn't date a partner of your sibling, regardless of gender. It's probably yeah. a bad it's idea. Bad, yeah. it's, it's cheating on, uh, you know, on their spouse, but like... I think that relationship is really cute and really true and genuine. And I don't want to have people be like, oh, well, they're actually sisters and gay uh, relationships are synonymous with incest, blah, blah. Because, like, those were all the prejudices of the time of the 1800s. That, That's disgusting. Um, yeah. they The Victorians lumped in homosexual laws with, uh, bestiality laws and pedophilia laws and that's why we still have that provenance today because a bunch of Victorian landed class gentlemen decided that those were all the same category when they're not um, so I tried polite. I just would have called them douchebags <laughs> <laughs> I just try to actively resist them at every turn but like yeah it's also true it's that's she <laughs> she loved her sister-in-law they were probably in love but but in but in law not it, not in other ways. Just yeah, her sister-in-law, not not her blood relative. That's oh my freaking god. Ugh, I could talk all day about this. Stuff. I know. I went on a tangent. I'm sorry. We no, were no, I love that. I I actually love hearing how these these prejudices come to be, and a lot of times it's it's bullshit. It's such bullshit, and it's been going on for so long, and it's just like. Ugh. Every everything I have to say about it is not good. It's not good things. Um. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about being like I teach LGBT lit, and my expertise is in the 19th century, and people are like, "What?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, we had literature in the 1800s, and actually a lot of ideas that people still have about queer people come from those ideas, for better and for worse, that a bunch of dudes established way back, and now like." people, especially conservative people, are still married to those ideas that are, like, literally Victorian. Like, come on, you guys, you're wrong. Do you ever think that's but because good... we, re we like, study Victorians so much? Or do you think that's just the point in time that we actually can still grasp as a culture? I think both. But I think that there is a fetishization of, like, the Victorians as the best writers. Like, we think, like... When you, when you get a list of classic novels, like most of them are Victorian novels, we think of that era of writing as the best era of writing. Um, but also we think that because they self-identified themselves as the best writers that had ever existed. And so like- <laughs> That we sounds just, like British. <laughs> we just believed them and kept believing them when, uh, you know, we should be suspect of like, that and I could go into that too it's very it's a very colonial lens it's like we are Britain we rule the world right now in the 1800s and so we think we are it for culture um and then as you know post-colonial era happens it's like okay people are people are more recognizing their own place in their separate cultures but not back then and I think that the good thing though about um those Victorian ideas becoming codified into sort of prejudicial and bigoted laws, and yes, I did say the good thing about it, is that while maybe in the Victorian age we didn't have the language we needed to describe some identities, the fact that we have explicitly written down 
we think these identities are good and these identities are bad and we're going to have laws that enforce those things gives us a really good framework to fight those bad laws. And whereas the prejudice, prejudices were sort of so culturally fluid, I guess, is the only way I can describe it, that they were just in society. And if you lucked out and were that trans person who was surrounded by really accepting people who didn't bring that prejudice with them, like, that's great. But there was probably someone else on the other side of the country who was trans and was so alone and so lonely. And now that we can see these prejudices codified into laws, we can now fight them more strategically. Does that make sense? Yes. I think so. Yeah. This okay. podcast will never end and I can't be sad about it. <laughs> Like, you can edit out anything you want. I yeah. don't want to is the problem. I only want to edit out where I spoke because I, I feel like you no, guys should just like no. go by yourself because it was so good. Like that is such good information and input and I just can't. People are going to be listening to this going, oh my God, this episode is never going to end. But it's so good. Like so much keeps coming and keeps coming and Maybe I just need to have you guys back on again. Like, I don't know. There you go. You could you could just stop editing after the one hour point and make it end. And then we can come back another time. Yeah. Of course. I'm not inviting myself back. I'm just saying I know the work of like, oh, I have three hours of material. Oh, no. <laughs> like, it's the worst when you open up that file and it just keeps going and you're like, I'm never going to get through it. But it's like such a it's good so good. Like, how do you deprive people of information? I don't know. I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm just not. I'm just not a rich white guy. I don't know how to deprive people of information. Just... <laughs> That's the best. That's so That's good. I mean, I'm right for the rest. <laughs> I'm glad you guys think I'm funny. Um, very funny and you're good uh what's the word a good interviewer like we only said these smart things because you asked us smart questions so. i think you guys already had it within yourselves and it, you just needed the opportunity which is what this podcast is all about is having the opportunity to say what you've been thinking the whole time essentially i mean i wish i thought more about what i was going to say before i said it because there have been episodes where i've come off much better than i have today <laughs> fine we're if you're worried about how you came off to us we think you're great oh and if you're intimidated you have to realize i teach college lectures for a living so if i ever sound smart it's because i get paid to sound smart that's true <laughs> and just like every like what both of you have literally to do. What every both day of you, that's what i do i imagine both of you have to do the same thing where you have to stand up in front of a bunch of freaking people who are waiting to to have a reason not to like you and you have to have everything just so perfect and i just can't imagine how stressful that is every day just to be like i have to be in front of these people who are waiting for a reason to like demote me in some capacity because they don't think i belong here and ugh. Ugh. and then you wow them with your brain and they all realize that it sucks to suck ha yeah Honestly, just assume that people are going to want to demote you and not pay attention and then do your own thing anyway and be so good that they can't. Like, Ooh. you just... Yes. It doesn't It doesn't matter what they do. You're still going to be you. I don't think that's good life advice in general, but I think for our, <laughs> our respective industries, it's true. 
Like yes. if you live in a mis- if you work in a misogynistic field, assume that you have to prove yourself. If you like have a normal job, people are probably going to be great to you. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um we need to do our recommendations and then where people can yes. find you. Okay. So, do you have any recommendations to give to our listeners? These recommendations can be of anything. It doesn't have to be of a piece of media per se, just something that you're really enjoying right now and you would love to share with somebody. Excellent. Um, So, I'm going to shout out to two uh, people whose work we have mentioned. Uh, The first is Valjean Jeffers. She wrote a book called Mona Livelong, Paranormal Detective. And that is like a black female Sherlock Holmes Afrofuturist steampunk novel. Um, Strong recommendation from the Podcast 13 team. Uh, The other one is called The Sea, all caps S-E-A, is ours. And that's a collection of short stories edited by my friend Jamie Goh, J-A-Y-M-E-E, Goh, G-O-H. And that is Southeast Asian steampunk. So we talked about Victorian stuff, but like it's not just white people and so many really strong, smart women of color are reclaiming that genre. And I think we should listen to them and enjoy their amazing work because it's it's like just excellent fiction, despite all the other reasons you should read it, like just enjoy it because it's really good. Now I'm just like really interested in knowing what the what was the rest of the world doing during the Victorian era? Because you're right. When you think of Victorian era, it's literally just London. Like what was the rest of the world doing? I mean, no one wants to listen to what the United States was doing. We were still like burning people because we thought they were vampires. Um, <laughs> that's a fantastic story. I just love how we've always been stupid. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... <laughs> I don't know if Jill has other recommendations or if you want to write on mine. I totally agree with your recommendations and I'm going to give a really obvious recommendation for anyone listening who is like me. I have been watching the most recent season of Doctor Who and I know anyone who likes sci-fi likes Doctor Who and has seen Doctor Who. I'm not recommending Doctor Who in general. I'm specifically recommending for anyone who stopped watching during the Moffat years. Sorry, that was me. I made a poopy sound. Yeah, and I second the poopy sound because it got real misogynistic. Women were erased and the ones that weren't erased were treated real badly. Um, But Doctor Who has had several head writers over its years and I really enjoyed the pre-Stephen Moffat seasons before he was head writer. And I wanted to give the new season a try. And I do have to say I highly recommend it. It's got me back in as a fan. The new Doctor is a woman, and it's not a throwaway casting choice. It it wasn't to appease someone. It was a very intelligent way to explore a character we've seen for literally over 50 years in a brand new way, and I really like it. And the new head writer is the creator of Broadchurch for people who like British dramas, and he brings that prestige drama which is a tv term for like high level high concept dramatic art uh he brings that prestige drama tone to doctor who in a really fun way so if anyone's too afraid to jump in i'm 
I'm recommending Now's the Time. Okay, which which doctor are you talking about? Not the woman doctor. I, I, I know of her, but I mean, like you said, when you jumped off at what period, which one was that? I'm not a huge doctor I, fan. I gave up. I gave up in the Maybe. last Matt Smith year. Same. I don't and know I, actors. And I was I'm having sorry. trouble with um, the one right before Peter Capaldi. So not okay. the okay. one right before the woman doctor, the one before then. Um, the baby face. Nothing against, yeah, nothing against the actor himself. He was, he brought a lot of great energy to the role. It was more just a lot of the circumstances around the storytelling that could have been better. I'll, I'll be honest uh, with you. The only thing I know about, like, Doctor Who is, I mean, what I mean, like, the only things I've obsessed with with Doctor Who, because I think I watched one season, and I was very confused the entire fucking time I was watching it. Like, it's <laughs> a very fair. confusing <laughs> show in my, I, like, I don't know if I just wasn't watching it with the right mindset, but, like, half the things that happened, usually at some point in the episode, I'd be like, what is going on here? I don't, <laughs> I don't know how we got here anymore. Um, but literally, um, the two Victorian wives, the lizard, the lizard woman from the dawn of time and yes. her wife, I, I want more of them always. Like every episode, I have literally tracked down every episode they've ever been in, which is not a lot, which is, makes me very sad. I understand the makeup's hard to put on her, but still, <laughs> um, and anything with River Song in it. Yes. I, there's one episode. Is, is she, yet, yeah. has she appeared Yet, with the new season, and why not? I don't know that she will appear because she was a creation of Stephen Moffat, who the first time we meet her, this is not a spoiler because it's literally the first time we meet her. She she dies. Um, And that is sort of a fairly standard trajectory for his female characters. They exist in some way and and only exist to serve the doctor and then when they no longer serve the doctor they their function in the story ceases to exist and they are eliminated from the story usually by death ah is that how all of the companions go away okay Um, not all of them but a lot of them in the moffat years that makes so i would recommend but i would recommend the new one why hasn't she appeared i mean i get it she's a product of this other person but man my hopes and dreams. Never say never. The arc of time is long. Never say never. I, absolutely. Because <laughs> I think at one point when I finished watching that one season, I actually did watch, like, my ex-girlfriend at the time. Ugh. Don't. I can't believe I've actually brought her up in this ever. Um, <laughs> she, that, she was like, she's never coming back. She died. And I'm just like, but she's a time lord thingy person. Like, time is, like, you can't tell me she's not going to come back at any time ever like that doesn't make sense yeah. for this character or this show that they like they brought back the mistress twice yeah <laughs> like, yeah science fiction is fun like that it, but yeah. i'm just i guess i'm just sad because i wanted to watch <laughs> that dynamic so bad and i get it i get it I that's guess. what fan fiction is for <sighs> if you don't find the fan fiction you want write it yourself that's i don't what know I enough say. about doctor who and the fans intimidate me <laughs> The fans are intimidating, that's fair, yeah. Yeah, they're uh, gonna yeah. get mad at me for saying I didn't watch the last Moffat years. I'm aware of this. A lot of people think the Moffat years are good, but they just haven't viewed it through a critical feminist lens because... And you can enjoy what you enjoy. I'm not saying you're a bad person for liking those seasons. I'm saying for people like me who did not enjoy those seasons, Doctor Who 
will be enjoyable again. Is all I'm saying. Yay. Good. <laughs> um, okay, so let people know where they can find you. Oh, yes. Uh, so our podcast Twitter account is Warehouse13Pod. That's Warehouse13Pod. And that's also our website, Warehouse13Pod.com. And you can find my professional academic Twitter at Mirandactyl, M-I-R-A-N-D-A-C-T-L, no Y, um, like a pterodactyl, but spelled wrong. <laughs> and uh, you'll also find I have other fan tumblers and fan Twitter accounts. But if you find me in real life, then I can hook you up to all of my other silly things. Um, I am at Jill Bill Pill on everything. It's spelled exactly how it sounds. <laughs> um, and you can find our podcast, which again is called Podcast 13, on any of your favorite podcast services or podcatchers specifically we know we are available on overcast stitcher apple podcasts um spotify yeah spotify so wherever books are sold yeah <laughs> and i have just subscribed because i need to start. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. welcome welcome <laughs> agent uh that's what we call our listeners because warehouse agents are the people who work at warehouse 13 so you are now an agent of our podcast Aww, i'm looking at your episodes and i was scared for a second there because i saw like 200 and like 202 and i was like oh no and i'm like wait no that seasons erica calm down that's oh. bad i i named them one like 100 for season one and 200 for season two and then only afterwards realized it was confusing but I mean, it's not confusing it just sounds like you guys have had 200 episodes and i'm just like man there, <laughs> there are 200 episodes i need to catch up on but i'll do it um Media Industries Insight, that's just how people in TV talk about episodes. Because if you want to say, like, episode 23, episode, you know, whatever, you start to lose track. Like, wait, episode 3 of this season or episode 3 of what season? So if you just say, like, 103 versus 203, it's just easier than keeping a running list. Like, do you mean episode 3 of this season or, like, episode right, right. 64, which is episode 3 yeah, of another that, one? Yeah, that, so. does, that does make sure sense. I'm sure I took it from you, Jill. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yes, that yes. makes perfect That's sense. All. <laughs> That's all from us, and we are really excited to be on your show, and I also still have, like, one of your pins from Klexa that I, like, found on a table and kept, so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I've had such a fun time. You guys are going to have to come on again just to talk about anything. Literally <laughs> anything. I just, I don't, I could listen to you guys talk forever and just to spare my listeners the next time I pop out this episode and it's like two hours long. <laughs> um, but, like, come back on for anything. Like, literally, something important's happening in your life. You've discovered something new about identity. <laughs> you discovered a new queer person so far, like, in history. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Like, just, like, be like, hey, I have something to talk about, and I'll just pencil you guys right in. Yay! Anytime. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you.